Okay, so some of you who were with us towards the end of last year will remember that we, we had a series called God Has a Name. And what this series was about was, was looking at um, some of the compound names of God. So we were looking at seven compound names of God. Now, if you're going, what's, what's a compound name? Well, a compound name was where we had Yahweh and a descriptor of God. And, and so that was the series that we were going through at the end of the last year. Now, some of the names that we did cover were Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is present, where we were talking about that in the midst of suffering and pain, God isn't this remote God who's removed and far from our own pain and suffering, but that actually he's there in the midst of it. He feels our pain and our suffering. Then we looked at Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace, where whatever battle or storm you find yourself in that's raging around you, then whatever chaos surrounds you, then God is the God that brings order out of chaos. He is our peace. Then Yahweh Rapha, the Lord our healer, how he brings physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual healing, how God restores every part of our lives. Then we looked at Yahweh Jireh, the Lord our provider, how he gives to us each day our daily bread. If we trust in him, and prov- he will provide for us at the right time and the right amount to meet our needs. Then we looked at Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our banner, how he's our banner, he is our identity, how he is also the one that we run to in the midst of battle because he will fight on our behalf. And we just have to stay close to him. He is our banner. And then Yahweh Ra, the Lord, our shepherd, where he is the shepherd that leads us and guides us to green pastures and still waters. He protects us and provides for us. Then I was due to finish up the series by talking about Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, unfortunately, that was when we had that two days of snow, and the services got cancelled, so, you know, wasn't able to finish the, the series at that point. And today, because of snow, our guest speaker has been unable to make it. He's stuck up in Scotland at this moment in time. So, that's bad news, but good news, you finally get to hear the end of that series, where we start to look at Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, this compound name appears twice in the Old Testament. And the first time it appears is in Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. So if you've got a a Bible with you, it's good to bring a Bible to church, whether that be paper or electronic form, um, please turn there. But if not, we do have the words up on the screen. And it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu. Now, it could say the Lord is righteous. And that would be cool, right? That's that's great because our Lord, he is righteous. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't say that. It specifically says the Lord, our righteousness. So this talk is effectively going to be answering the question, how does God make us righteous? Now, 
The biblical answer to that is justification by faith. Now, justification by faith is, is one of those central doctrines of the church. It's really at the, right at the center, at the heart of who we are as Christians. But I would hazard to guess that many of us would, would struggle to articulate exactly what justification by faith is to someone else. And you know what? That's okay. Theologians have been debating how to articulate justification by faith for centuries. But particularly in the last decade, um, there's been a lot of debate going on in the church on how to interpret the main person who kind of described or articulated justification by faith, this particular doctrine in the New Testament, and that is the Apostle Paul. Now, with most debates, there are two sides. The first side is known as the old perspective on Paul. And this is the, the more traditional way of reading and interpreting what Paul wrote in the New Testament. And the key person on that side is a chap called John Piper. And although there are many other theologians who, who subscribe to this traditional way. And the other side is known as the new perspective on Paul. And the key person on this is a a guy called N.T. Wright, and also E.P. Sanders, Jimmy Dunn, and a host of others. Now, the real difference between the old and the new perspective on Paul is, is because in the last 80 years, we have come to understand and know about first-century Judaism like, like never before. And, and the reason for this is the discovery of the, the documents from the Qumran community. And you might say, what's that? What's the Qumran community? Well, you may not have heard of that, but you probably heard about some of those documents, and that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm sure some of you have heard of, of those documents. And they went into a great deal of detail describing what the first century Judaism was all about and what the, the kind of things that the Jewish, the Israel people of that time thought. And because of that, our understanding of first century Judaism has literally gone through the roof, which has led to this theological work to understand the context in which Paul wrote most of the New Testament letters. And so to better understand the mind of Paul when he wrote about such things as justification by faith. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is about this debate is because some of you may not completely agree with what I'm going to say this morning. And you know what? That's okay. We can take it outside afterwards, and I will convince you I am right. Either that, or you can start to throw rotten fruit at me now. Um, and I'm sure, you know what? There are many things that we will not agree on completely theologically. And one of the reasons I love this church is, and this community is that we are, we are free to discuss, to debate, and hold different positions on a whole wide variety of issues. So the debate about justification, justification by faith, is very complex and theologically intense. I personally find the debate fascinating, but then I'm a little bit of a theology geek, if, if you haven't realized that already. Um, but don't worry, I'm not going to inflict that upon you today, first of all, because I suspect most of you aren't theology geeks. 
but also because, you know what, to really do it justice, I just do not have the time. I would just scratch the surface, and you'd probably go away more confused than when I started. But if you really want to deep, you know, have a deep dive into it and delve into the, this debate that's going on at the moment, then the two main books that I would recommend, if you're uh, on the old perspective front, we've got John Piper, The Future Just of Justification, A Response to N.T. Wright. And the new perspective on Paul is N.T. Wright's Justification, God's Plan, and Paul's Vision. Now... Those of you who already spend a lot of their time looking at theological blogs, so that's maybe two of us, um, will know that this debate has been going on for a number of years, and it's not going to end anytime soon. John Piper and, and his crowd, they refer to N.T. right as N.T. wrong. I think that's quite clever, actually. I mean, theologians aren't known for their sense of humor, so that one is quite amusing. But I'm going to nail my, my colours to the mast, so to speak, and I'm going, to, I'm going to say where I'm coming from and what this talk is based upon is the fact that I believe that N.T. Wright is actually not N.T. Wrong. He is N.T. Wright. So as I mentioned earlier, this talk is about how does God make us righteous? To answer that question, we need to address the issue of language. Now, I think we all know that language is fluid. It, it changes over time and in different cultures. The same word can take on different meanings. A great example is how, since the internet, some words mean something else entirely compared to pre-internet or before the internet. For example, troll. Before the internet, it was obvious. It was a giant in Scandinavian folklore inhabiting caves, you know, or under bridges and all that kind of stuff. Now, a person who sows discord on the internet by starting arguments or upsetting people. Same word, different meaning in the, con- in the culture, in the context. This one was actually new on me, catfish. It's clearly a freshwater or marine fish with a whisker-like barbels around the mouth. I mean, why would it be anything else? Apparently, it now means a person who sets up a false personal profile on a social networking site for fraudulent or deceptive purposes. I didn't know that one. Um, My favourite one, and probably more to do with chav culture rather than necessarily internet culture, is... Sick. Now, everyone knows this means to feel nauseous and wanting to vomit, to be affected by mental or physical illness. Now, it means an adjective similar to cool, referring to something that is either great or really amazing. Now, I kind of promised when I discussed this with my, my teenage daughters, they said, Dad, please, don't embarrass us. Don't say that you're down with the kids when describing that one, which I am, clearly. So, being down with the kids, I also know that the way you pronounce this is sick. <laughs> I also promised them I wasn't going to say that. Sorry, guys. The point of those examples is that biblical lang- that language is fluid, it constantly moves, and so it is with biblical language as well. 
The Hebrew word sidkenu, as in Yahweh sidkenu, can be translated as righteousness or equally justification. The Greek translation of sidkenu is dikaiusene, easy for me to say. But remember, you might be going, this is all Greek to me. Why, why are we talking about Greek? Surely Hebrew is, is what we should be talking about. If you don't know, then the New Testament's written in Greek. And so that's the language that people are looking at when they're starting to, to look at these documents and understand what, what was being written by Paul. So that's why what it says in Greek is important. Now, in the Hebrew context, the word sidkenu was used, it was a term that was used in the law courts. There were two parties and a judge who ruled, or rules. And the judge would declare one party, sikhanu, righteous. In other words, they were not guilty. That is how people understood the term. In the Greek and Roman culture, though, the word had a different, different meaning. The word dikaiusene pointed towards moral perfection. If someone was righteous then it meant that they were morally upright. They had a high moral standing. Now, the thing is, with the people of Israel, it wasn't about moral standing. It was, it was purely about whether they were found guilty or not guilty. The difference is subtle, but it is crucial. In other words, in a court of law, you could be horribly immoral. You could have no moral standing at all. But as long as you were not guilty of the crime that you were being accused of, then you would be declared Sidkenu, righteous. And the thing to hold on here is the realization that the word righteous in Hebrew, Sidkenu, when used in relation to humans, refers to our status when we are judged. So we are guilty or not guilty. It does not refer to our own personal moral standing. That's really important. Just to make things a little bit more confusing, the word righteousness, when used to describe an attribute of God, refers to how he always does what is just and right, as well as how he is faithful to his promises. But more on that in a moment. So with that in mind, I want us to turn to our attention to the part, part of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul really starts to talk about and describe and articulate this justification by faith. And that part of the New Testament is the book of Romans. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans, I have to say, is my favorite book of the Bible. And I know it's probably quite sad that I have a favorite book, but trust me, it's good. Paul wrote this book to the, Rome, to the church in Rome, to the Romans, and they were really struggling with a division. They were struggling with this division between the, the Jewish believers and the Gentile, the non-Jewish believers, as to what, what laws of the Torah they should follow and what they needed to do. You know, they were debating over things like what food you could eat and whether you need to get circumcised. I'm very grateful that that one didn't stick, I have to be honest. Um, and so Paul wrote this letter to bring unity to the church. And he, in it, provides his fullest explanation of the gospel. And I think that's why it's probably my favorite book. It, it really does 
Paul really does make an, an ironclad, an airtight case of our need for Christ, the glory of salvation, and, and how we need to live as a follower of Christ. In addition to that, it is the, theologically rich. So, you know, enough geeking out from me, but, you know, I would love it if I could take you through all 16 chapters of, of Romans and just show you just how amazing it is, but I don't, and you'll probably all thank goodness for that. Um, but instead, I just want to focus on the first four chapters, and the first four chapters are really where Paul describes this justification by faith. Now, I was going to give you a brief overview of these chapters myself, but I decided to show you a video instead. Now, some of you will, having heard me talk before, well, it will come as no surprise that I'm going to show you a video. Um, but this video that I'm going to show you is from a series called uh, Read Scripture. So if you've been following along with us as part of the year of biblical literacy, then you would be using the Read Scripture app and, and you'd be seeing some of these videos as you go along. Um, but you won't get to this video until about end of October. So I'm giving you a sneak peek now, okay? Um, so if the media guys are ready, all good? Nice and loud. By introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, and second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, Righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. 
As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family. And it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4 because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. So Paul, What do you think of that? It's great, isn't it? I, I really love the videos from the Bible Project. And, and even if you're not following along with the, the Read Scripture app or, or, or with the Year of Biblical Literacy, I would highly recommend... The, the Bible Project videos. And if you want to see more of them, um, go to the Bible Project channel on YouTube or go to thebibleproject.com and you will see them all there. So, in summary, all humanity is trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. Rescue won't happen by trying to obey the laws of the Torah. God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus thereby creating the faith-based, multi-ethnic family promised to Abraham, Abraham, the people of God. In other words, as it said in the video, Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. That through faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. We are declared righteous, Sidkenu. 
we have that new status or status if you're American. Basically, what that means is that we have not been made righteous, but we have that status over us, that we are righteous. That's good news for those who have a faith in Jesus personally, but there is more. Indulge me for a few minutes more as I start to talk about the full narrative of Scripture. Now, you may have heard us talk about before about understanding the full narrative of Scripture, that the story of God is in four chapters. Two of those chapters are fall and redemption. Um, The problem is, despite the fact that there are four chapters, many have truncated this story of God to just these two chapters. And we've already looked at fall when we heard it in the video, didn't we, as it summarized what was covered in chapters 3 to 11 of Genesis and, and how we have turned away from God and become sinful and idolatrous. And we've also just covered redemption. It was in the video as well, by talking about that saving work of Jesus Christ. Many are focused on just that part of the story that talks about original sin, judgment, and how we escape that through redemption. And it has led many to see salvation as effectively getting a bus ticket to heaven. I've got my bus ticket to heaven, and so it doesn't matter what I do whilst I wait for that bus to arrive. It becomes about how God deals with my own personal sin. Now, although it's a two-chapter story, the two-chapter story is certainly true, it's just really limited. We need to know the full story of God, which also includes chapter one, which is creation, And how it talks about the story of God begins with God who is eternal and the creator of all things. That the world has been made for human flourishing and it was good. Where we could live in joy in the presence of our maker. Worshipping God by loving him and one another forever. If we skip chapter 1 then we miss out on understanding everything that we were made for. Many also miss out chapter 4, which is restoration and renewal. And the plan of God doesn't just end with a people who are redeemed for God, who are forgiven by God, but also with a new heaven and a new earth, where sin, death, and destruction is all removed, and peace and love defines how we relate to God and each other. So if we skip chapter 4, then we miss, we miss out knowing that Jesus will return to bring about the full restoration of creation. That as we wait with hopeful anticipation for him to return, to complete his final work, he calls upon us to participate with him, to work with him, in the renewal of all things, right here, right now. When we consider justification by faith as part of that full narrative of Scripture, i.e. that full four-chapter story of God, how God now looks looks at us and declares us Sidkenu, not that we are made morally perfect, but that we have this new status, we are declared not guilty, righteous, justified, by faith in Jesus Christ. When we acknowledge that, Yahweh Sikhanu, the Lord our righteousness, 
is Jesus. And that's fantastic news. It's not, but it's not just fantastic news for us, but it's fantastic news for all of creation. We haven't just got a bus ticket. Yes, it means there's hope for us, but it also means there is hope for Northampton and, and all of creation as, as together, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we join God in the renewal of all things.